Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast. This is episode 92 and I'm your regular host Aaron Percival and joining me is my usual partner in crime Adam Zeller. Hello again everyone. And we are back with another interrogation of one of those lucky people that just gets to be involved and play in the sandbox that we we regularly nerd out about every day on the boards, normally twice a month on audio. And we are interviewing the author of the recent novel, Alien Echo. She's down on the book as Mira Grant, but her alter ego is uh, Seanan Maguire. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That, that was an okay pronunciation, yes? Yes, it's Mira Seanan. So, obviously, thank you for coming to talk about Alien Echo, and we will spend most of this nerding out about Alien. But before we uh, go down that route, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself outside of Alien? And Predators, we'll find out as well. Who are you, and how did you get into writing? So I am from the West Coast of the United States of America, and I got into writing because when I was about seven, I found out that was an option. I had not previously been aware of that fact. And uh, there was this television show on a network called USA called Ray Bradbury Presents. And at the end of every episode's credits, opening title credits, the man, this white haired man would pull a sheet of paper out of his typewriter and throw it up into the air. And I got mad one day because I was like, why is this guy taking up valuable time that could have been used to let me hear another story? And I complained to my grandmother who said, well, that's Ray Bradbury. He wrote the stories. He, he absolutely gets to take up time. And that was revelational. You know, the idea that someone got to make up stories and that that was a thing you could just do. So I started writing stories immediately and I never stopped. And eventually that led to a career. I am now an internationally published award-winning novelist. I mostly write in urban fantasy under my own name and biomedical science fiction under the name Mira Grant. I also write for Marvel Comics. I am the current author of the Ghost Spider Ongoing, following the Gwen Stacy of Earth-65 through her superheroic adventures. So I basically got to have the job I wanted when I was seven years old. It's all very exciting. <laughs> I hadn't realized you wrote Spider-Gwen. Yep, that's me. That, that's one of the few titles I subscribe to, actually. So this is even more awesome. I lo- love, love Spider-Gwen. And I love the current run. Thank you. They let me turn Swarm into a dinosaur. Like, my editor, when I called him and said I want Swarm to be a dinosaur, just kind of went, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> and that is the joy of comics. Ah, uh, sweet. Now I might be bugging you later about questions about that. But yeah, so and, and we're, we're talking Alien. And a long-standing tradition that we have on the podcast of when we have a guest on, especially when it's somebody in your position that gets to play in this stuff, is we love to hit, just hear about the first time they, you know, ever experienced the franchise. So do you recall your first experience with Alien? Was it the film? Was it the comics or something? And I'm very grateful that the statute of limitations on child abuse has run out. Uh, the first time I saw an Alien movie was the first movie. I was three years old, and it's one of the earliest memories I have, is sitting in my uncle's lap in our living room, watching as this funny man in a white suit walked across a big room full of leather flowers, and then one of the leather flowers opened up and gave him a hug. And then my mother came in the room, and I had to wait six years to see the rest of the movie. (laughs) You're lucky. Aaron saw another part way, way too young. (laughs) I think that disturbed him a little bit. I, I was two years after you. I was five. Oh, did you see the chest burster when you were five? Yeah, I I watched Aliens and I got up to the chest burster sequence in the hive and then it had to be turned off. Yeah. Yeah, I can see where it would be. By the time I was five, I wouldn't have batted an eye. But at three, I think mom picked the right moment to turn off the film. I would never have eaten spaghetti again. (laughs) Uh, When when did you actually get to see it through as, as an adult then? Oh, young adult. As a, as a young adult, I got to see the whole movie when I was eight, which was probably still technically too young. But by that point, I had seen so many things you shouldn't show an eight-year-old that they all kind of threw up their hands and went, we can't stop her. <laughs> so been a been a fan of the body horror and horror then for a long time. For a long, long time, yeah. Yeah. It was the nightmares that sort of made me so fascinated with the series. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was that sort of morbid fascination. And I, I guess I think a lot of us probably as children probably have that same fascination with the series. And it's probably why we love it so much. Do you have a particular favorite of the films? You know, I continue to love the first one because I love cats. 
And to me as a child and even more to me as an adult, no, screw you. I'm going back. My cat is in there made such perfect and profound sense in a way that a lot of the motivations in horror movies don't make sense to me. You know, we have to go back. I left my favorite lipstick. No, we have to go back. Fuck you. I like my cat better. Yes. (laughs) Well, people do that in fire situations and stuff like that as well. That's a very real thing. Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite recent horror movies, although I guess it's not as recent anymore, is James Gunn's Slither. Because there's a moment where one of the characters just melts down completely about wanting a Mr. Pibb, which is not only an American soda, it's an American soda that is famous for being a knockoff of another better American (laughs) soda called Dr. Pepper. Mm, We have it over here. Uh, It's not the same at all. Because yours is made based on sugar and ours is made based on corn syrup so it tastes completely different fair enough british mr pib is not as shitty as american mr pib sorry i meant dr pepper we have dr pepper over here you had mr pib for a little while your dr pepper tastes completely different your dr pepper tastes like a fruit soda i can't say i've ever you know noticed the differences because i've never tried the american one that'd do it i love slither as well that was one of my favorite all-time quotes in it which is um my easygoing nature is getting sorely fucking tested yeah <laughs> It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I need to watch it again. I'm pretty sure I was the entire Northern California box office take. I saw it in the theater like 15 times. <laughs> Just so soothing. My one regret when James Gunn got Guardians of the Galaxy was that he's now so busy making big movies with real budgets that I don't think we're ever going to get Slither 2. I don't know. It might farm me out, kind of like Brightburn. That'd be nice. I enjoyed Brightburn, actually. Yeah. Anyway, Alien. Prior to working on Alien Echo, did you have any knowledge of Alien's expanded universe? Like, had you gotten into any of the comics or the other recent novels? Some. Not nearly as comprehensive as a lot of folks have. I'd read quite a few of the comics and some of the books. I haven't seen, unfortunately, bounce off licensed horror novels, which sounds terrible given that I write licensed horror novels. But there is frequently not much space made for women. And having encountered one too many graphic rape metaphors in a franchise that didn't need them, I got very cautious about picking them up without somebody that I trusted having reviewed them first to confirm that, no, we're just having a wild adventure with murderous aliens. We're not going to have a sexual assault party in the middle of the Marine's ship, which is not reflecting any specific material in this, just reflecting my own. I've been burned on this too many times and got really careful. The comics tend to be safer. Yeah. So with with Echo in particular, how did your involvement uh, come to be about? Was this something that Fox approached you about or? Yeah, Fox approached me. I was not their first choice. I know that because their first choice was a friend of mine, but she didn't have room in her schedule. And I was able to turn around a fairly solid book on a very tight timetable, which is what they wanted. Yeah, all tie in stuff tends to be a quick turnaround from what I understand, like two months or something daft. And, you know, unfortunately, because somebody else owns it, you can get an entire outline approved and start working and then have someone in your chain of command change. And suddenly what's been approved is not okay anymore. So it's honestly a miracle that any of these books are good. You know, that's something we've been quite lucky about recently as well, because the last five years or so of material since they restarted has been Mm -hmm. damn solid. Yeah, mostly really positive. And personally, like, The last two films, uh, Covenant and and The Predator, for myself and a lot of fans, were pretty disappointed. And what what keeps us really happy as fans right now is all this expanded universe uh, material. And and just to be clear, I I really, really enjoyed your book. So thank you for writing it. Same. And I remember when we first heard about this concept, like a a young adult novel in an alien franchise, it was like, well, is that really going to work? You know, they tried PG-13 with AVP and a lot of fans were upset, but... No, I mean, I uh, there was a young adult book I read growing up as a teenager called Raptor by by Paul Zindel. I remember. Um, yeah, and I I loved that too. And I just specifically remember when when reading that book, like, wow, they're they're getting away with some some graphic stuff in here for for young adult book. And we kind of said that in the last podcast that we recorded. Just we we were kind of reviewing this one and. I was like, well, the best young adult novels are like like Harry Potter books, you know, where like anyone of any age can really enjoy it from teens to to adults, I guess. Probably some young adult books probably wouldn't be for children, but from teens to adults, they're pretty universally accessible. And I really felt that was the case with this book. So just for the tangent there, I just wanted to get that out there that I really did enjoy this book and I definitely will be reading it uh, more going going forward. So thank you. 
I think it's very easy to forget that the golden age, even though we just talked about it, the golden age of horror is your teens. Definitely. Like most of us fell in love with these franchises when we were teenagers. I was reading Stephen King when I was nine and 10 and I thought the sex stuff was dead boring, but all of the blood and gore and monsters were wonderful. That's really the only restriction that's placed on YA. You can put all the gore in the world. You can slice people up. You can kill them in horrifying ways. Look at R.L. Stein's Fierce Street series. What you can't do is get really graphic with the sex. And that makes YA horror a wonderful, safe place for teenagers to play and, and enjoy stories. So Alien YA to me was a natural fit. Yeah, Alien is not the sexiest of... Of franchises, thankfully. I mean, it's, it's all undertones, really. Yeah. We wanted to ask you about identifying the immediate challenges you faced in writing Alien for the young adult audience. I assume the first things that came to mind were, like you were kind of alluding to, less sex, but also toning down language and being a little less descriptive about the violence, or was it pretty open with the violence? Like, the violence, much... I unzip people. Like, there is no point in that book where I went, mm, pull back the gore. With young adult, there's kind of an unwritten rule that you can only say fuck two or three times a book. And since it's mostly being written for an American audience, you can't say cunt at all. You have to make sure that you're you're hitting that level of language, the level that would not cause a grandmother to dump a bucket of water over their teen's head. <laughs> you're usually allowed one non-graphic sex scene if you want. You can have all the kissing you want. But other than that, honestly, the biggest barrier I encountered with writing a YA novel was some parts of the fandom who don't read YA and had decided that if it was YA, it was going to be bad and felt the need to tell me about that on Twitter at great and extensive length including one charming gentleman who explained that I had lost all authorial integrity for taking what he assumed was a million-dollar paycheck from Fox to write this book. If, was, if only writers were paid that much. Right, right. Right. It was not a million-dollar paycheck. It was a decent quantity of money for the amount of work they wanted done in a very short period of time, but it went straight to my medical bills. And this guy was just berating me for like a week and a half about how, oh, I'm so sure that your dream as a child was to write an alien novel. Well, actually, yes, it was second only to my dream of writing a Critters novel. So if you could get me that franchise, that would be great, dude who thinks all novels need to be written one letter at a time on a typewriter in a garret in Paris. Such a shame that the small vocal parts of fandoms tend to be the ones that stick out to people so much in, you know, in like your position. He does not represent us all. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It feels weird to go up to a stranger and be like, I love your work. Your work's amazing. I can't wait to see what you're doing more than once. I will totally say that to an author I admire who's just announced a new project. But apparently that weirdness does not kick in for you are a trash human for writing a book I don't think I'm going to enjoy. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just everyone's on the Internet these days. We see we see the worst of, of people, unfortunately. And I'm not allowed to fill their houses with spiders. It's very offensive to me. But you, you were saying Fox had approached you regarding this. As far as the specifics of the novel, was there anything they came to you about, like, this is what they wanted to see? Like, what did they want it to accomplish? Well, what they wanted it to accomplish was being an accessible YA novel that was also an alien novel. So it need to have a romance element that came from Fox. It did need to be something that somebody who is reading modern YA would enjoy and not just something that someone who's already an alien fan would enjoy. They also needed her to be named Olivia, which was not in the original Priestess. So I had initially named her Harlow, but they had plans already to make her one of their flagship characters for the moving forward. So we got the note of, yeah, you need to change her name. Other than that, they didn't have very many. Ver oh, and it had to be set between Alien and Aliens. So most people wouldn't know about Xenomorphs yet. And they were very firm on that throughout the book, that there could be no information about Xenomorphs available to the colonists. They had to be completely in the dark. That's the time frame that a lot of the current media is playing in. So yeah. um, that makes makes sense. But one, one thing in particular that I was very aware of was the ships being depicted as outsiders amongst the colonists. Mm -hmm. That struck me as a thematic element that I found very relevant to how I felt when I was a teen. There were other moments like that in the book. So I was just wondering how intentional elements like that were in connecting you know to the teenage audience and the teenage issues or young adult audience you know um very intentional if someone is too integrated and too happy where they are they are less likely to be wandering around poking at weird wildlife and for me part of what made being in this complete 
the vacuum of a setting. You know, you can't know anything. You can't really be dealing deeply with the colonial Marines. You have to, to a certain degree, look like you are completely ignorant of the franchise in which you're working because of these restrictions we have placed on you. But you can make up the wildlife of an entire world. So I needed to have characters who would have reason to be interacting with that wildlife and not necessarily super trusted or close to the colonists. That that makes sense as well. That's completely understandable. So I suppose that actually goes into another thing I had about Olivia was that I just I loved that she was an apprentice xenobiologist because it gave her the existing knowledge to assume things about the alien and how it worked. And it's still right. feeling believable because I really I understand why it happens, but I dislike it in some of the tie-ins where the characters have to play catch-up, you know, also there to help readers who might not necessarily be aware of Alien who are reading it anyway and let them play catch-up with everybody else and it's something I personally dislike but with Echo, it meant that the book didn't need to slow down while the characters caught up with the readers because Olivia was just able to assume all this stuff off the bat I like that you're saying assume because that is correct. One of the notes I got from Fox on an early draft she assumed, assumed that they were hauling off the colonists to eat them Because when you see a giant predator come out of the sky, and it is so clearly a predatory organism, when you see a giant predator come out of the sky and start cocooning people, you're going to assume it's eating, especially given the xenomorph's growth rate. So I got a note back from Fox saying, you have to change this, xenomorphs don't eat. And I'm like, well, one, you need to hire a biologist. Two, apart from that, how the hell would Olivia know that xenomorphs don't eat? We have this creature that is literally kidnapping people, stuffing them in cocoons and dragging them away. She's not going to jump straight to their admittedly somewhat fucked up growth cycle. That's just that's just not how science works. I, I studied herpetology in university, so my goal was to make all of her biological jumps as believable as possible as things that you could expect a semi-field biologist to get to in the field. I don't like it when characters should know better and don't. The recent I Am Legend really bothered me because by making Will Smith's character a CDC employee, suddenly a lot of his choices became not only stupid, but selfish and mean. Whereas the original I Am Legend, where we're dealing with an ex-soldier who knows nothing, is fine. Because why would he know that he was doing anything wrong? That was a very intentional thing in terms of moving your plot around... Did you really consider it in terms of, you know, playing catch up with the reader? Was, was was that intentional at all? Or was it more about giving her a reason to go out there and uh, poke things? It was really more about giving her a reason to go out there and poke things. I assume, perhaps wrongly, but still, that no YA age reader is going to pick up an alien book unless they already have at least a tiny bit of familiarity with the franchise. Like, this wasn't a get people to buy into the franchise book. This was a get people to buy into the extended franchise, the non-film franchise. I can never imagine many people that aren't already fans picking up tie-ins. That might be my limited imagination, but that, that's why I always find it curious about, you know, the, the decisions to put things in there to make it accessible and explain all the other the bits and pieces. I'm sure you might get some readers that they're familiar with the alien films, might have seen them a while back and they're into science fiction and they just see an alien book on the shelf and they're like, hey, maybe I should check this out. They're not like, as versed as we are, probably. Given that you've done almost 100 episodes of an Alien and Predator podcast, I doubt anyone is as versed as <laughs> I find you very impressive in your single-mindedness. <laughs> it's a bored collective over here. So Echo's main characters are Olivia and Viola, both are twins. Now, you also wrote a Predator short called Blood and Sand, which also featured twin protagonists. And from what I've read online doing a bit of research about you, it seems to be a running thread that you utilise twin main characters. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about that. Was the twin angle in Echo from from you, personally? And why twins? Yes. Well, I, I have a lot of twins in my family. I like them. I like a good sibling bond in fiction. I appreciate the fact that when characters are twins, the creepy people are less likely to say, but they should bang. Uh, they'll still say it, but they are less likely to do so. And with Olivia and Viola, not to get too spoilery, because I don't know how spoilery you get on this podcast. Oh, go, go nuts. Go nuts. Uh, by the way, yeah. spoiler warning for anybody. Yeah, spoiler. <laughs> they needed to be twins for the android angle to work. 
So that just sort of, of came with the thing. And then once I had to change Olivia's name from Harlow, it was perfect because Olivia and Viola are twins from Shakespeare. And uh, I have a big thing for Shakespeare themes. That's, that's one of my weird authorial quirks. So that, that, that naming was definitely intentional. Oh, yeah, that naming was absolutely like, I figure you you find a lot of pairs of twins in the world even now named Olivia and Viola because English majors have children. One of the characters I wasn't particularly a fan of was Michael, and I'm pretty sure that was your intention. Um, A part of the book that I did find a bit strange personally was when Cora insisted they go back for him after he had already assaulted Olivia multiple times and had proven detrimental to to their survival. Why do you think it was that she wanted to save him in in spite of this? Uh, Because she had known him since she was a kid. This is a closed colony that is extremely focused on limiting resource use. They're basically the reuse, reduce, recycle movement taken to its absolute worst extreme. And so this is someone she's seen every day for her whole life. It doesn't matter if she doesn't like him. She's not really comfortable with the idea of just leaving him to die. It was a little awkwardly handled. I freely admit that. But it is a book that is very, very low on male characters. And I wanted to keep at least one of them around for more than five minutes. So, yeah, that was a lot of the motivation there. He's a dick. I was killing <laughs> he, him. He's a cunt, was what he was. Yeah. Is it kind of weird making young characters such cunt? Have you ever met a teenager? Yeah. I was about to say, maybe the schools there are different than they are over here, but... Like, I was a, I was a fat, nerdy D&D playing girl. I met a lot of cunts when I was school there are things i would not be comfortable writing a teenage character doing but they are also things that i don't tend to write adult characters doing and if you're going to be a protagonist then you might well be a raging cunt it's possible okay that's perfectly believable and understandable Uh, An interesting detail I noticed in Echo was the source of the alien infestation and the speculation surrounding a secret Weyland-Yutani research base. Uh, Mm -hmm. I was wondering if this was a call-out, specific call-out to Brian Wood's comic series Aliens Resistance, or if this was just, you know, ethereal in terms of uh, what it it was. I did enjoy Aliens Resistance, but no, this this was just sort of ethereal. I don't think anybody takes a gig like this without hoping that they'll get to go back and go again. So I was trying to make sure I had things in place for if I got to pick up after the end of the story. So sequel bait for your own yep. purposes. Okay. So th- that makes me wonder if this next one also is. So there was another part in the book where Catherine, Olivia's mother, specifically calls out her brother, Sebastian, who works for the company. Uh, I was wondering if that was something deliberately mentioned to be picked up down the line. I had my own ideas about who it could be in the own um, the whole Alien Expanded Universe, but was, was that for, y- for yourself to pick up? That was for myself to pick up. Sebastian Ship is not someone from the Alien Expanded Universe. Fair enough. That shot me down then. I've lost a fiver. Sorry. I thought it was going to be Amanda Ripley's husband. You know, they might well decide that it is. The, the, the interesting thing about doing licensed work is, you know, Alien Echo has gotten good reviews and it's performed pretty well, but the folks that commissioned it are, as far as I know, no longer with Fox. So there probably will not be another YA Alien novel for a while. And that means I don't get to say with any kind of authority what anything that was not in that first book means. So they very well might say that, oh, that's Amanda's husband, and that is how Olivia and Amanda met, since I know that they are intending, uh, with the Colonial Marine stuff, to kind of drop Olivia into Amanda's vicinity. Yeah. Everything's getting really connective at the minute. That's kind of why I thought yeah. about it. I was kind of curious about the the publisher myself, because this is the first novel in quite a while that hasn't been done by Titan, and I just assume it's because Titan doesn't really do young, and, yeah, young adult novels. Okay. And the editor that I worked with was fantastic. He did a great job, but I think he has also changed houses. That's one of the fun things about this wonderful world of licensed publishing. Like, if you're lucky, you somehow hit the zeitgeist at exactly the right moment and explodes. If you're not, you probably are one and done. So one of the defining aspects of the movie Alien 3 was the inclusion of the dog alien or 
oxaline if you prefer the uh, assembly cut. So the expanded universe would expand on this even further with creatures like the pred alien. The ability that the aliens have to take on aspects of their host is known as the DNA reflex. And it's a well-known feature of the franchise, but not very often used aspect of the creatures. Alien Echo plays in the DNA reflex sandbox big time. So what led to the inclusion of this aspect of the book? I love it. Like they, they let me build an entire planet of weird ass biology. I have notes almost as lengthy as the book itself on the biology and xenobiology of Zagreus. And the, the DNA reflex is one of the things that makes the xenomorphs interesting because otherwise they're just sort of unstoppable killing machines. That's not super interesting. That's a natural disaster that chitters at you. But the DNA reflex is like, what is it today? Is it a lion? Is it a giraffe? Is it eating your mom? I don't know. So I just wanted to play with that. That's such a good toy. Was it always a lion worm as the host? Or did you play with like any of the other things like the the hippos or the deer? Actually, originally it was Viola. Because there's that whole stress about androids being biomechanical. So in the first pitch that we sent in, we had the aliens implant in viola and then hatched a part android alien that got scotched as well yes they're biomechanical but we're not focusing on that right now and so we had to retool with something native to the planet and lion worm was our second stop we didn't have anything between android and lion worm hmm. how how much did the book sort of change from pitch to release was it with the with the major differences in, in what you'd initially wanted to do We had Olivia's name, obviously, uh, although I like where we think Olivia is a good name for her. We had the android alien, which was so cool. Like, it was just so... I wanted an action figure of that sucker. And Viola, they had her head still. The whole thing with toting Viola's head around happened even when she was an alien mommy. Uh, But Viola's head and the alien android could kind of pick up on proximity to each other. So it got very upsetting for everyone involved. And there's mention of Viola's pin pals that she's been communicating with these people uh, this whole time, which is part of how she knows she's an android, even though her sister doesn't. That, you know, she has long since established that the tech is there and that this is, is where she's standing. But originally it meant Viola actually had some information that was like, we've had disappearances, we've had bases going black. And it's almost always tied to something like this ship that they want to scavenge. I don't think this is a good idea. But Fox really, really wanted to make sure that everyone was ignorant, that when the aliens hit the planet, there was no way anybody could be prepared. And I do actually kind of regret that, because speaking again as someone who has studied the biological sciences, biologists like to talk to each other. And people would be noticing the sheer number of bases that are going dark at that particular moment in alien history. Just looking again at the expanded universe, even just at the stories in the alien anthology that came out a couple of years ago, like the amount of places where we're just losing everyone and everything's going to shit is so high that I feel like they kind of sacrificed a little bit of the reality of their universe to preserve tension that was not incredibly key to the story that was being told. Talking about uh, the aliens themselves then, something that we noticed was that we saw or no queen or eggs in the book. Although I really did love the description uh, that Cora's mom gave of the eggs, you know, as being a rotten flower. I love that. But what led to, you know, no no queen or no eggs, you know, was it just didn't fit in the narrative or was that something that they wanted to keep to the side? Fox had no input there at all. I feel like sometimes when we're working in these extended universes, whether it's alien or predator or critters or even the X-Men, we get hung up on, but this is always here. And so we start overlooking the story potential of, but what if it wasn't? You know, the eggs, if you look at the story, there's really no point where including the eggs would not have slowed down the narrative and shattered the tension. If they're dealing with eggs when they're already trying to peel people out of cocoons and hide from aliens in their own carbon-rich environment, well, now we've got a whole secondary set of problems that doesn't actually advance the story. And since we know how that ends, it doesn't give us more tension, which should always be your goal. If you're not advancing the story, you need to be finding a way to increase your tension. As for the queen, I felt like it would be too much to make our lionworm alien also a queen. Like, that's gilding the lily a lot. And I wanted that native Zagreyan biology. I wanted the DNA reflex more than I wanted to go, I created a queen alien. And it was certainly memorable. That That is going to be one of the things that this book is, is probably going to be remembered for. Mm-hmm. But speaking of things that uh, tend to always be in the alien stories. 
So we also wanted to ask you about the big Android reveal. It wouldn't be an alien story if there wasn't an Android secreted away. Uh, was it always envisioned to be Viola with the yes. whole sister dynamic? Yeah, because again, we have we have a certain amount of memory encoding that's already in the alien universe. So some of the tech is there. And they were very careful to be like, no, this is this is how far you can push it, which is I felt was a little contradictory with some things that have already been done. But whatever, they're they're paying my bills, so I don't care. And having it be Viola is the most profound betrayal that I could work into the book. You know, it's not just that your parents went into space and kind of brought this horrible thing that's trying to kill you and all your friends. It's not just that you're trapped on this weird colony world where everything is trying to eat you. It's your sister, who is the other half of you, has been dead since you were two years old. You've never actually had a sister. Yeah, and I, I honestly thought like that was the, one of the most interesting aspects of, of the book for me, because for me, like, yes, it was a betrayal. Trail, but it also wasn't because as Olivia made it known that she still considers Viola no less her sister, regardless of anything that that happened. So just just that fact that they were secretly replacing uh, Viola's body as she grew and they had to get more processing power because of her, I assume, like accumulated memories or just her her growth as an individual that aspect and the fact that her mother was like, well, we were going to tell you when you were 18 so we could, you know, appropriately process this, but we wanted you to have a normal childhood. Like for me, it was like, like that, that even wasn't a betrayal for me. That was just her parents wanting her to have like a normal childhood or at least as normal as she could have until they would eventually break the news to her. So I really, really liked that, that dynamic. You know, that's something the Alien Universe also does is exploring the concept of, of androids being human, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought this book handled that really well. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, for Liv, a lot of the betrayal is that Viola already knew and her parents were doing that thing that, that adults do where we underestimate teenagers. We assume they can't be cunts. We assume that they can't know that they are androids. We assume all of these things because they're kids and we've forgotten what that's like. And so Olivia is just like, my sister could have been having a life with me if you had just been willing to admit that she was not a biological. Ah, uh, yeah. She yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Gone outside, all of these things that you have stolen from us that we're literally never getting back. That's kind of where the betrayal is. Like you'll note, she's not mad at Viola at any point. It's not Viola's fault because V didn't make those choices. Her reaction to that news was something that really I, I I'd already been really liking Olivia from the start of the book anyway you know those the opening sequences really enamored me to her just her inner thoughts and everything the way she did everything I really liked her but then when we got to the point where she found out the truth about Viola and just her reaction to that news was something else that went me went made me go yes you are a damn good person I really like that as well thank you you alluded to this earlier but you know you you squeezed so much world building into Echo you know from the diversity ecosystem and the notion of non-corporate funded colony worlds you know uh, Zagreus was such a colony and you you specifically called out like differences in in colonial cultures like things like the one of the colonies where children weren't allowed to speak unless spoken to and Zagreus being this um recycling culture how many different concepts did you go through for what made Zagreus different and how much fun was it playing with that that world building I hit on Zagreus very, very early because, you know, I'm from the West Coast of the United States. We're kind of the hippie part of the planet. And the plastic straw debate was just starting to really kick off when I was writing this. The idea that by banning plastic straws, which are less than 0.2% of ocean waste, we could somehow save the planet is just ridiculous. But the number of people who have seized on this as gospel is ridiculous. I am an obsessive world builder. That is where I find my joy is by setting things up. And I like pushing social norms to the extreme when possible, because no matter how ludicrous you think something is, somebody thinks it's a good idea. Somebody thinks forbidding children to speak until they turn 19 is going to make them better citizens. So yeah, Zagreus itself came together very quickly, but a lot of the tat around it took a little bit longer. And I had to map out like seven different kinds of colony world to figure out where the Zagreus colonists had come from. A surprising amount just kind of gets cut, no matter what. If it's not load-bearing, you have to leave it on the floor. Is that all documented away somewhere? Oh yeah. You should throw that up on Twitter. Be all over that. Well, unfortunately, I really would like to work with Fox again someday. <laughs> and uh, people have a tendency to treat anything an author puts up that's like that as if it were actually canon. You know, Zagreus is canon. 
Uh, it exists in the alien universe that gets to stay. No matter how many worlds I created and cut, since they were not approved by Fox for the final printing process, they're not real in the same way that Zagreus is real. Okay, so that that's concern over the wi- wider wider world. Fair enough. Was there anything you wanted to do with Echo that you couldn't, other than what you've told us about the um, android-born xenomorph? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I I told the story I was both hired to and wanted to tell. The only thing I wish I could have done is know for sure that I was going to get a sequel because I really do love these people and I would have liked to take them a little closer to what I knew Olivia's eventual fate was going to be, which is joining the Colonial Marines. That was another thing I was kind of curious about. Like, I don't know how much you can talk about this, but do you think she'll be going into the Colonial Marines kind of like in the same capacity that her mother did as like a still a xenobiologist uh, consultant for, for a Marine group or is she just going full on Marine? I would like to think that she was going to be doing what her mom did, because it's always nice to think that education wasn't wasted, even when it's fictional education. But I honestly have no idea. I only found out that she was going to be showing up in the comic series when somebody told me on Twitter. So do you know that she appears to be showing up in the new game coming out? I do know that. Okay. But games and games and fiction of any kind are different. They work at a different pace. So she was probably in that game before I even started working, which is part of why they insisted on the name Olivia. And I'm not expecting necessarily anything other than appearance to carry over from the book into the game. But, you know, you always kind of hope and the books had good sales and good reviews. So I really did hope they'd go, okay, there's money in the YA Hills and let me do the follow up, which is why we end where we do with Olivia, Cora and Viola just sort of lost in space at this point i don't know if they're pulling a newt on cora or what it would make perfect sense for them to break up because olivia now represents a truly traumatic time in poor cora's life but i don't know if viola's head is still stuffed in olivia's locker somewhere um you know she doesn't have the funds to get her a new body right away or better processing so i could absolutely see her keeping her sister because that's your sister you're not going to just throw her in the garbage but stuffing her in a locker and just being like i'm sorry this is what we got for right now. Um, yeah, I, I noticed that that dynamic, how Olivia was specific in saying like, well, I'm really passionate about this new relationship, but my sister is still the priority because she's oh, yeah. family naturally. Right. And so and and that that would be an interesting thing if, if there was a sequel, like I told you, these these things never last for teenagers. I would love to see both characters back again. I definitely think there's there's room for a sequel there. Have you seen the cover art of for um rising threat that seems to be an adult uh, olivia in in the garb and i think she looks great but i know nothing i have no spoilers to give for none have been given to me <laughs> so no crossover at all with any of the comics any of the game you just operated completely independently well i said i i said to the guy writing the comic that i hoped he would take good care of her uh but he did not respond to me so i don't know if it was lost in the infinite crush that is twitter or what and, and that is one of the things about working with licensed properties. You know, I write Spider-Gwen. I'm super proprietary about her. I worry every time she shows up in someone else's book that they're not going to treat my girl well. But even as I have those feelings, I have to remind myself she's not my girl. I have no ownership here whatsoever. And the same is true with everyone in Alien Echo. Even the ones I created, I created them under a licensed work for hire contract. And they became the property of Fox as soon as I put them in that file. The joys of tie-in. The joys of tie-in. I knew what I was getting myself in for, so I'm not whining. I'm not saying, oh my God, they took my thing. But you always have hope that you'll get to keep working with the things that you create, even when you create them for somebody else. Seems to be the case for some you know, where Brian has carried through a lot of the comics at the minute. Mm-hmm. Hope, hope, hopefully, you, you know, you'll still get to, to come back and play. I mean, it's not, this hasn't been your, I mean, I, I know it's your first alien, but, you know, you've been involved with Predator as well. You know, those two are very grouped together. Yep. Though, given how far in the past my Predator story was, I don't think there's any chance of a crossover. Well, you know, I, I was thinking more in terms of returning yes. to, to play. So Alien Echo has been out for a few months now, and from what we've seen, it seems to be getting largely positive reviews. How do you feel overall about the reaction to the book? I'm very pleased that people gave it a chance. I know that Alien YA was a little bit of a hard sell for some folks. 
And so it was very, very nice to see people actually going, well, let's try this. She's written other horror. She's not bad at it. And I, I love everything I write. You know, despite Garrett and Paris guys saying, I bet this is what you were really passionate about. It actually is. If I'm willing to sit down and write it, I am passionate about it. And you can tell when I'm not. So it's wonderful seeing people meet my kids and love them. And as we just mentioned, before you tackled Aliens, you also wrote the short story Blood and Sand for Predator If It Bleeds. Could you tell us a little bit about working on that one? That was an anthology, so they were much, much shorter, much easier to do uh, in terms of approval. We didn't have to get a full outline approved, just a basic pitch. And mine was Predators Don't Hurt Children Unless Children Have Done Something to Prove Themselves a Danger but sometimes adults hurt children. And everyone was fine with that because it wasn't messing with the predator mythology. It wasn't questioning them as being good guys in their own in their own way. That was Brian Thomas Schmidt, who's an editor I've worked with before, is generally pretty chill, which I appreciate. I'm a pretty high-strung person, so being able to work with someone that's chill is always nice. We put out a pretty good book. I was pleased with it overall. If It Bleeds is up there as you know one of the top two predator books in my opinion That's- and yeah brian brian i love brian we, we've had him on the show in the past and uh yeah fucking love him one of the things that i really liked in in blood and sand was the whole getting the predator to do the dirty work and mm-hmm. then- and that happy about it and then at the end, you know, he's, he's offering the gun, you know, give me a reason to have your head too. I loved it. I don't think there was a single story in that anthology that I disliked. Well, well, that's really good. My rule for anthologies is I won't keep it unless there are three stories I liked enough to read again. I'm, I'm a little harsher on the alien one. There's wasn't so keen on that one, but I was, I was so happy with If It Bleeds. I have forgotten who wrote it, but I really, really loved the, uh, the You Social Alien story at the end. Because that was getting into one of the things that I've always felt was kind of missing a little bit from the alien universe. It feeds back into, oh, they don't eat. I'm trying to think which one you mean. I think it was Scott Siegler. Uh, the first person one. Yes. Yes, yes, that was Scott. Because the thing is, like, I get that you want to have some mystery in your big monster. But as a biologist who is also an alien fan, your monster starts to trend into fairy tale bullshit. If you say things like, oh, these monsters that can increase their body weight by 600% in less than two hours don't eat. And that's honestly a pretty debated topic amongst fans, not to get too into that. But but as far as like uh, some of the movies like AVPR and Alien 3 goes, it's pretty apparent that they do eat. I don't know if they like need to f- for survival. But yeah, that's that's interesting that Fox would, would say that because uh, just given some of the expanded media as well as some of, of the films, I, I would hardly call that one settled. One of the really uh, more popular and loved comics, which is sacrifice is all about like a sort of backwater colony that has to deal with an alien so rather than let them get attacked they sacrifice like cloned but not quite real babies to the alien to Mm -hmm. um, feed it and it leaves them alone for three days because they're specifically feeding it and there was the deleted scene from alien as well i mean i know it was deleted but it it was a thing back then in you know in in the 70s that the alien got into like their food store and had all that which was their explanation in that for how it increased its body mass so quickly so yeah i I, i'm I'm with you on that one it's an odd detail for them not to be um not to be on Yeah. yeah And like, I can understand saying we don't want it to eat because we don't want to open the door for someone trying to domesticate a xenomorph. But that's what they're trying to do. Right. I know. But I can see Fox saying we don't want it to ever be successful. And if you make it food motivated rather than reproduction motivated, now you've got that opportunity. But there are other ways around it. It's just work smarter, not harder at that point. So I really liked I really liked Scott Siegler's story. I liked seeing him deal with the aliens as having a semi-realistic insect case system. He's, he's he's returning he's actually doing a full-length novel not this year i think it's next year that one's out that's super great scott's a great guy so i i assume it, it would go without saying but you would very much come back and, and pen another alien or predator story i would absolutely come back and pen another alien story i don't know if i would do predator again the strict warrior culture is fun but it's very limiting in some ways Which doesn't mean I don't enjoy the hell out of the films and the comics. It just means that that is not the kind of story I usually tell. I'm much more in pandemics and natural disasters. And a xenomorph is a natural disaster. So 
See, and that's that's a shame because I'm sure Fox directives would make it like all oh, the Predator stories have to be about warriors and, and hunting. And as far as the, the film The Predator goes, um, while it was a little disappointing for me, I do think something they were getting at was was interesting in that, you know, obviously high tech advanced society couldn't all just just be hunters. They were scientists and people who people build gear and. Yeah, so I, I would love to see a story in the Predator universe that focused on some of the non-hunting aspects of, of their society. But unfortunately, yeah, I don't think that's something Fox would, would want to pursue. Yeah, I and I also don't think that it's something most of the fandom would want to pursue. I mean, just look at the pushback I got for doing a YA novel that had romantic elements because that's currently a part of what YA means. I'm doing the first book about a Predator professor and how he does his taxes. <laughs> like, that's just not going to play well in Peoria. Yeah. No matter how much we might want it to. To to be fair, the the prequel novel, uh, James Moore's book, that predator was um, his job was some form of geneticist, and the, the most of the book and all his killings was him off on his holidays, essentially, yeah. which was uh, which was interesting in that one. Have you seen the GoFundMe for James? Yes, I shared it on um, okay. on our page, actually. Um, hoping he uh, he does better. So am I. He is a great guy, and I love him dearly, and this is all very terrible. Make sure I include it in, in the podcast post as well. James, who is out there, uh, for people listening who don't know, is, um, is it cancer, I think it was. It's cancer, yeah. He's unfortunately a freelance writer living in America, which means he has no medical insurance. GoFundMe is his medical insurance. So Chris, I think it was Chris Golden set up this this um, campaign for him. Yeah. So and anybody out there, you know, wants to help uh, support James, he's he's written quite a few bits for for our fandom, um, including, like I said, the uh, the Predator prequel novel and uh, Alien Sea of Sorrow, and one of the shorts in Bug Hunt as well. Pop on, every little helps. So yeah, um, and that is actually everything from us. Before we do sign off, I'd uh, just like to give you the opportunity, if there's anything you'd like to share, uh, any anecdote or thought that we just haven't given you the chance to put across with any of our questions, you know, feel free to... Your questions were super thorough, which I really appreciate. I loved working on Alien. I love seeing more women working on Alien because we do often forget that girls love horror even more than boys do. We are the primary audience for most horror movies. So as long as you let us come to the party, we will be happy to show up and bring snacks. But that was actually some of the feedback from the anniversary shorts. The anniversary Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, because yeah. a couple of those were directed by uh, women and written by women as well, and they were they were really well loved, actually. Mm-hmm. So completely agree there. Well, thank thank you for joining us. You know, it was very much appreciated. Thank you for having me. Have you got any particular social channels that you want to throw out there for people who are interested in in following you or learning a bit more about you? I'm mostly on Twitter as at Seanan McGuire. I am less responsive now than I was before they rolled out the new interface, which hides half my mentions, but I am there and I do answer questions. I'm also on Patreon as Seanan McGuire, and my website is www.seananmcguire.com, and you can find me there as needed. But my main social media is Twitter. Anyone on Facebook who says that they are me is lying to you. We we do not uh, have those problems, fortunately. But for people who might have come th- to this uh, podcast through uh, interest in Shonen rather than our existing fans, you can find us on all the socials as uh, Alienverse, as VS dot Predator Galaxy or AVP Galaxy on Twitter. We're also uh, on YouTube as well. Same moniker, Alienverse Predator Galaxy. And my next video is actually going to be a lore uh, video on the lineworm hybrid from this book. Because right. uh, I actually, I, I should send you that. Actually, I commissioned a piece of artwork for it of a visualization of the hybrid. I'd love to see that. Thank you so much. So I would drop that. Over. And you had a, another one too of one of the last scenes of Cora and, and Olivia running, right? Oh no, that that's that's not from this. Um, that's not from this book. That's for something I'm working on myself. Oh, I see. That's for that audio. That's, drama. that's what I thought it was from. It, I mean, it fits. It looks like. Oh, that that one's not the limeworm hybrid. But yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Aaron Percival. Adam Zeller. And Mira Grant. Signing off.